You're listening to TIP. Everybody talks about, well, we, we invest in quality companies or we only look at quality. And you know, we, we do too. And we, we've said that. But over the years, we sort of asked ourselves, what constitutes quality and why? And so we've come up with these six attributes that, that go into the quad framework. And I'll, I'll just briefly run through them. On today's episode, I'm joined by Drew Weitz and Barton Hooper from Weitz Investment Management. Drew is a portfolio manager and Barton is the director of equity research at Weitz. Weitz has $4 billion in assets under management and the firm manages four equity funds, four fixed income funds, and an asset allocation fund. During this episode, I chat with Drew and Barton about Weitz's overall investment strategy, which largely focuses on finding quality companies for a discount, And we talk about what specific factors they look for when trying to find these quality companies to invest in. We also cover why they focus more on what a business is worth based on its future cash flows instead of its current multiple, what discount rate they use when projecting cash flows, as well as their thoughts on a number of companies such as Google, Facebook, Amazon, Liberty Broadband, and Accenture. With that, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Drew Weitz and Barton Hooper. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today I bring on Drew Weitz and Barton Hooper. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, I'm super excited to chat with you both today. You know, you both work at White's Investments, and this is going to be a really fun conversation, I can already tell. And I wanted to start off by chatting about what you guys are doing at White's, and then we can dig into a couple stock picks as well as your thoughts on the overall market environment. Starting with you, Drew, you're a co portfolio manager on a number of equity funds at White's. You have the Hickory Fund. Partners 3 Opportunity Fund and the Partners Value Fund. And I was taking a look at some of the holdings in these funds, and I noticed that many of the holdings are in all three funds or are maybe in two of the funds. Maybe you could talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what distinguishes these funds and how they differ. Sure, I'd be happy to. I think maybe you've mentioned the funds that I'm a co-manager on, but I think to tell that story, we really need to take a step back and look at the, the offerings that we have across the board. So we manage four equity funds, four fixed income funds, and an asset allocation fund here at White's. And, you know, really the legacy and sort of history of the firm was founded in managing all cap go anywhere strategies. And we had a number of funds that did that, slightly different flavors to each. But over time, what we heard from our shareholders and from the advisor community is that they really wanted to be able to do the allocations amongst company sizes, you know, themselves. And what we ended up doing was reconfiguring our lineup so that now we have our Hickory Fund, which is our mid-cap strategy. We have our value fund, uh, which is managed by our colleague, Brad Hinton. That's our large cap strategy. And then Partners Value retains that sort of legacy, go-anywhere, flexible mandate. Partners 3 Opportunity Fund also has that same sort of go-anywhere, all-cap strategy, but it also has a number of extra tools that it deploys. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. So you'll see, particularly in Partners Value and Partners 3, 
you will see cross-pollination of companies within those strategies as they're meant to, I think, try and focus in on a collection of businesses that come together in sort of a, what we hope to be a best of breed kind of way. You know, again, we're, we're trying to be responsive to what the market has asked of us in terms of being able to give site-specific funds as well as sort of being true to uh, sort of our legacy and potentially offer a one-stop shop. Taking that a step further, could you guys walk through you know, your overall investment process at White's? You guys have grown a lot over the years. So I'm curious how that has maybe changed and evolved. I think I can take that, Drew. I think, first of all, like any good company or any, any good investment firm, we're focused on continuous improvement. And so it's not as if you can look at our investment process today versus, say, 15 years ago and go like, oh, wow, watch change. You must have had this big, big bang moment or something like that. And instead, what it is, is, and you know, this is a cliche, but cliches sometimes are there because they're true. And you know, we're always constantly looking at how can we do a little bit better each day. And you know, I always look at it from the director of research standpoint of what would our investors pay for if they had to pay for every sort of action that we did and sort of try to eliminate all the things that I don't think they would pay for and focus on the things that they would. And so that leads us to over time, you know, it goes back to our founder Wally's sort of mantra of think like private owners. But then how does that translate into what we do today? And how do we end up with investments or, or companies that we look at to fit into portfolios? And to start off with, the, the main or the, the first principle is, you know, here at White's, we're business analysts. We're not stock pickers. We really have an emphasis on understanding all the underlying uh, pieces of a business. And then we look to see, is it available from a price perspective of, of what we like? When I'm recruiting or talking to people about prospectively joining our team, I'm always really focused on do, it, do they have a passion for looking at all the elements of a business and really digging into that? Because if you've come here or, or if, you, if you want to be involved in the quote markets and you get, you're an adrenaline junkie and you really like trades and that, you know, we're not a good fit for you. But if you like to do what I just, just discussed, then you're going to have a great time. But you know, it's kind of nerdy, but we like that. How does that all end up you know, day-to-day research process? And how, how do we have a consistent manner of looking at businesses? And that's what that manifests itself in what we call our quality at a discount framework you know, or quad. You'll hear Drew and I mention that a lot, maybe too much. But you know, quad is really six attributes of investing the way we look at a quality business. Everybody talks about, well, we, we invest in quality companies or and we only look at quality. And you know, we, we do too, and we, we've said that, but over the years, we sort of asked ourselves, what constitutes quality and why? And so we've come up with these six attributes that, that go into the quad framework, and I'll, I'll just briefly run through them. Three of them are highly quantitative, financial leverage, cash flow consistency, and what we call return on invested capital efficiency. And you know, with the power of Coifin or Centio or Bloomberg or what have you, Access to financial information is ubiquitous and really cheap. When I started in the business too long ago, only people that could pay $25,000 a month for Bloomberg could, or $25,000 a year for Bloomberg could really get access to that information. Now it's everywhere. Those are critical to understanding the quality of a business. I don't want to diminish them in any way, but we can allow computers to do that work for us to sum up quality. And then there are three other elements in our quality score, competitive positioning, management, 
and reinvestment runway that are really highly qualitative and require judgment. And that's where it goes back into understanding the holistic nature of a business. All that rolls up into a quality score that we rank from one to seven, with one being the highest quality. And we really try to spend our time on quality scores one through three. So anything that's an above average business that, that flows into that. Sort of a long-winded answer, but, but that's how we look at things and do stuff day to day. And thinking about your guys' business, I think of the way Warren Buffett kind of structured his business over the years. And I think many people would say one of the keys to his success was the way he structured Berkshire Hathaway. And what I really mean by that is that he's not at the whims of the investors, you know, pulling out at the wrong time and putting money in at the exact wrong time. For example, when stocks run up, People want to invest their money with them because the company's been doing so well. And then when stocks crater and crash, the opposite, where people are pulling money out. So they're buying and selling at the exact wrong time. And it kind of makes me think of what happened to Bill Miller during the great financial crisis. I don't remember the exact numbers, but his assets under management just totally collapsed. And you know, it's just really sad to see. And you know, it's really not his fault to some degree. So I'm curious how you guys manage that at White's and that are you susceptible to investors you know, having these investor biases and tendencies of putting money into the fund at the exact wrong time and pulling money out at the wrong time? Yeah. you know, I mean, we're a managed open-ended mutual funds. So we are open for business every day. Daily liquidity is a, is a feature, not a bug in that sense. But you're right. I mean, I think it's the same is true for companies. You know, when Warren talks about companies get the shareholders they deserve, the same, I think, is principally true for money managers as well. And I think we have certainly seen our share of times when our performance, our short-term performance has been really strong. And so you have some fast money come in the door. And then perhaps a quarter or two later, they get disappointed and they leave. And to date, that's not been a disruption for sort of actually executing the investment strategy that we put forth. You know, And we're when those clients come in, you know, we want to do a good job for them and hope that they, if they didn't know who we are and what we do when they came in the door, hopefully they actually learn it and stick around for the right reasons. You know, because at the end of the day, I think our responsibility as as stewards of these investors' capital is to help make sure they understand who we are, how we invest, and to be transparent to them. Because I think ultimately the you know the thing that we need to make sure we do is to execute on our strategy and not change our stripes. Barton, I think, very appropriately pointed out that over long periods of time, we're focused on having continuous improvement in our investment in our investment processes and disciplines. But at the end of the day, our philosophies haven't really changed. You know, it's really sort of underpinned by this idea that we believe that these are real businesses and that we should approach them as true owners of that business. We believe that, you know, really good ideas are probably few and far between. So we're going to build concentrated portfolios where we think no individual security is going to sink the ship if it goes against us, but where every holding can make a difference to the portfolio. And then we just fundamentally believe that human behavior and human psychology gets in the way in the short term of investors or traders or whoever it might be can get in their way. And so if we're focused on the long term and thinking about what are these businesses really worth three to five years from now, you know, then we can actually use those bouts of volatility to our advantage. And so I think our job, again, if we are transparent with our shareholders and we create that alignment around sort of values and process and discipline, I think our belief is that we'll get the shareholders we deserve. I really like that answer. And it leads me to ask you guys, 
how you guys measure success at White's. I think there are a number of different ways to measure maybe business performance. You have things like assets under management or your assets returns relative to some benchmark. So how do you guys measure success at White's? I'll take a crack at that, Martin, if you want to add on. I mean, I think perhaps you heard it in my sort of last answer. We think of ourselves as being a client-focused firm. And so for us, that means that our number one priority and success measurement will be delivering superior risk-adjusted absolute returns to our shareholders. That's job number one through 10. In that way, we don't tend to think about having specific AUM targets that we want to hit. You know, I mean, I think it's always fun to be part of a, you know, a growing organization. So you want the arrows to be pointing the right direction. And furthermore, I believe that what we provide is a valuable service and that it can do good for others. So we want our client race to grow. But again, our, our focus isn't on how do we make sure we get more AUM? How do we make sure we get more clients? Our focus is always on how do we make sure we're delivering returns to our shareholders? And if we do that well, and we're transparent about how we do it, we think the rest takes care of itself. I think I would add to that, Drew, a little bit, just when I mentioned continuous improvement with our research team, it's really sort of a firm-wide approach. We on the, on the research team, investment team, are obviously the, the tip of the spear when it comes to delivering returns, but we can't do it without the rest of our colleagues in the organization, whether that's operations, accounting, marketing, compliance. And all, all of those teams are also looking at what are ways we can just get a little bit better each day? How can we lower the cost for our investors? And how can we deliver a return on time? Because this is a human capital intensive business and time is our most precious natural resource. So every part where we can save time for our team and the investment and research team is just more time we can spend on behalf of our shareholders. Yeah, that's a, a really great point. And I would just like to reiterate again, I mean, I think so much of the interactions that we have with our clients and sort of the opportunities to share who we are and what we do, that those efforts are carried so much more by our folks who are on our client services team, our marketing teams, you know, our, our folks who are out meeting with advisors. And they do a terrific job of articulating our story and, and helping people know what we're up to here in Omaha. Before we dive in to talk about individual companies in particular, I'm curious if you guys target some sort of return when you're analyzing an investment, say you you do the math on what you can expect from a company, are you using some sort of hurdle rate or targeted return in your guys' analysis? Yeah, that goes back to sort of that, that quad framework. So first of all, you think about it, we're, we're looking for the highest quality businesses as we measure them. And I, and I walk through those attributes. We use a consistent discount rate when we're projecting out cash flows for business, free cash flows, and we discount that back. And the reason why we, we use that, um, it's 9%, is because we think that's just an acceptable level of returns if you're an investor. If we can make 9% over time, it should be happy. That's the discount rate that we use for cash flows. And then we want to buy at a margin of safety to that. Your actual returns, if we do our jobs correctly, are higher. But you know that's not the only sort of measurement that we use. There's, uh, you know, Wally's always famous for calling DCFs uh, Hubble telescopes because if you just change one little thing, you know, you get. I guess we should call it the web now, right? Because the Hubble's no longer the best telescope, but it opens up a galaxy of new possibilities and alternatives. DCF is a tool, not the source of truth. 
And so we also look at things like internal rate of returns, comparable multiples, and all of that rolls up to say, here's what we're buying. I used to have it in front of my screen before uh, I, I moved offices, but I always look at it as, what are we buying? What is it worth? And what are the alternatives? And I think that's how, if you boil a lot of stuff down, portfolio managers and the team, as we look at investments, do that. That's sort of how we approach it. We do use a consistent discount rate, but we use it in the framework of a whole bunch of other things. A number of value funds you know, I've looked at have added Alphabet and Meta to their funds, which I think initially took a lot of value investors by surprise, but it's It seems to be becoming more of a theme where obviously these companies have large moats, they're growing like weeds, especially post-COVID, and you know, have these long-term secular trends behind them. For Alphabet, for example, you have the digital advertising trend. They're ahead of the curve on that. And both those companies reported earnings this week. So I'm curious if you guys could touch on maybe what you saw from the earnings reports or if anything surprised you or maybe speak to maybe the companies in general. Yeah, sure. I'll take that, Drew. You want to add on? I think the way to look at it, first of all, we've owned Google since before 2010, which took initially a lot of people by surprise. But again, if you go back and look, what's a quality business? And again, the way we frame things, and I didn't mention it when I talked about process is, and a lot of people say this, but we look at what's a business worth, you know, not what multiple it's trading at. So a lot of times they're aligned, but, but not necessarily always. Because if you have super confidence in future cash flows, and you think there's a good predictable path, where you don't have to have sort of multiple probabilities together to equal something, then you find something like Google where there is a good trend. There's digital advertising, more of it's going to move that way. They were already dominant in search. We invested in, in Google, like I said, before 2010. And then Facebook was, was a little later. Both of those businesses, as you mentioned, Clay, are, are digital advertisers. They're the leaders. They had a tremendous tailwind from COVID. Everybody was at home. They were on their computers. They were ordering stuff. They, they were either searching for it or scrolling Facebook or Instagram and said, hey, that looks like a cool gadget. I should put that in my house. Or maybe they bought a house. I don't know. But they were helped by that. But there's this long-term trend of advertising moving from traditional formats to digital. And it's not just advertising, right? It's pro- trade promotion. It's marketing. It's sponsorships. All of that is, sort of, is moving to this digital world, and that's where Google and Facebook are best positioned. They're, they're the best companies so far in that industry. Tremendous COVID tailwinds, and now we have this sort of COVID boomerang. You have Apple, what Apple did with their advertising or privacy initiative, I, I should say, which basically cut off a lot of ways that especially small businesses, mostly small businesses, could target uh, their customers. And Facebook had more of that because they don't have the search business than Google. So Facebook's been hurt by that, plus this COVID boomerang, plus you know war in Russia, inflation. And so there's lots of things that we believe are pretty temporary that are affecting both companies. Facebook right now, a little bit more. But if you look over time, we, th- we think that that will smooth out. We'll get through this rough period and then we'll, we'll return to the trend. Even on a two-year stack, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but Google's... uh, I was talking with our colleague, John Baker, who is the coverage analyst here on Facebook and Google. And Facebook's and Google's advertising revenue in second and third quarter of 21 were at least 30%. 
some quarters were closer to 50. So that's when you look at it on a two-year basis, they're still growing pretty well. It's just that this quarter reflects a prior quarter that was pretty high. And then all those other issues I talked about, we're still quite happy with those investments and they're pretty cheap right now in our perspective. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. You know, you seem to really like Google and Facebook. And I'm curious, Barton, if you have any thoughts on Amazon. I enjoy following Bill Miller's work and he is just a massive fan of Amazon. He's owned it for many decades. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on them because to look at them today and see a $1.2 trillion market cap and you look at AWS, their retail business, their advertising potential and such. I'm just like, man, I see a lot of potential here. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. I concur, and, and we do own it in a couple strategies. 
We haven't known it as long as Bill Miller, unfortunately. Uh, talk about home runs. You're right. I happen to be of the belief that Amazon's retail business is sort of coming down to a level that you would expect of a company that large and, and in so many markets. It's still growing and it's going to grow faster than Walmart and Target for sure. And I think right now, you know, in the first quarter, they talked about how they had too much inventory and they'd overbuilt their fulfillment centers and delivery network. And I thought it curious that the reaction was, oh my gosh, how could you not see this coming? Yet, if you go back to the very beginning of the pandemic, I think in April of 2020, people were up in arms that they couldn't get their sanitizing wipes in the two days that Amazon normally promised. It's like, how could you let this happen? You should have, you should have built more capacity. And then they build all this capacity and they go like, how could you not see this coming? And to put it in perspective, it's less than a year's worth of capacity the way I look at it. I thought they did a really good job. And that lack of CapEx over the next, call it five, six to 12 months is going to really bring in free cash flow. And then you have AWS, which I think we're still, to, to use another worn out cliche, early innings of all this stuff moving to the cloud. Amazon's going to be a leader. Microsoft Azure will be Google Cloud Platform. Even Oracle uh, Cloud Infrastructure will get a fair share. So we like Amazon and think it's going to do good things. Just one thing I might add just on top of that, and I think it's a little bit of consistent theme with the kind of businesses that we're looking to own. I mean, Amazon, they did build all of this capacity. They had the, the wherewithal to do that. And it's not as though it's not going to be utilized. It's just be on a little bit longer time horizon. You know? And so here's a company that whether it's the next six months or the next two to three years, right? they're building capacity in a way that they know will be utilized. They're able to invest and sort of make their own break as it goes. And you know, as we sort of think about the portfolio, those are the kind of businesses that we want to own. You know, I mean, there's various different examples of companies that are willing to invest in the short term for very long term opportunities. And that can sometimes dent the stocks. And that's just fine with us. Those are the kind of opportunities that we like. Let's transition to talk about a couple of other individual stock picks you guys have at White's. The first being Liberty Broadband. Walk us through mm -hmm. your thesis on this company and maybe a little bit about their story. So Liberty Broadband itself is a holding company. So they own roughly about 50 million shares of Charter Communications. That's a 26% stake in the company. And so really, if we're sort of talking about the story of Liberty Broadband, we're really talking about the story of Charter. So I'll come back to Liberty maybe in a moment. But so Charter is the second largest broadband provider in the United States. It is in its current configuration, sort of the culmination of a merger of companies, I think it was 2016, when they bought Time Warner Cable and Bright House Networks and really sort of built this scale player in that industry. And you know, for a long time, we've been investing in the cable industry as a firm. Sort of general principles, we really like businesses that have clear, predictable, sort of growing cash flow streams and subscription businesses like broadband clearly fit that bill. We also like businesses that have some sort of network advantage. So in the case of you know the broadband networks here, you have sort of local or regional monopolies where adding one more incremental customer to the network comes on at really high incremental returns. You know There are other examples of that as well. We've sort of been around this industry for a very long time. And you know it's had its share of controversies over the years. I mean, I think the current form of these companies, we've, we've, I think, passed through the period of time where people were concerned about cord cutting and the video business going away. And now people really do understand that these are broadband companies first. And broadband is simply a better business. If you think about adding a, a video customer, you've got to take 45 or 50% of the money that comes in every month and hand it over to the content companies that provide the video. You're not doing that with broadband. 
similarly, if you're signing up a video customer, you've got to put set-top boxes on all the TVs that are going to use it. That's capital expenditures that you're putting into that home that you're hoping to generate a return on. The broadband business, you give them a cable modem and you're done. And then lastly, the cost to serve for that business is much, much lower as well. You know, Traditionally, when people have trouble with their cable service, it's the video side of the equation. Broadband's been a much more resilient process. And so we've been going through this period of time where an already good business has just been getting better. The margins have been expanding. Capital intensity has been coming down. And you know, Charter itself, I think, has been an interesting just case study within the industry where they have really sort of stuck in their lane of saying, we're not going to diversify into media. We're going to you know, sort of sit in our lane and we're going to grow this business based on volumes, not on price. They've actually potentially counterintuitively reinvested back into the business to bring all of their customer service in-house and to really sort of focus on delivering faster and faster speeds to their customers. All of that together creates an environment where your customer service, your cost to serve, even though what you are doing is more labor intensive and higher cost labor, you're reducing service transactions from the footprint. And so your actual cost to serve, the number of times you're sending trucks to someone's home or the number of times you don't have a first call resolution in the call center, all of that comes down. And so Charter's really had a pretty unusual, or I shouldn't say unusual, but by design faster than industry growth rate, particularly in the broadband business. That's sort of the operational story there. But it's also important to think about sort of what have they done from a capital deployment strategy. There, Charter is engaged in sort of this levered equity repurchase story. So they've consistently levered the balance sheet at about four to four and a half turns of leverage and used both the growing free cash flows that they have on hand, as well as the proceeds from incremental issuance of debt to repurchase just a massive amount of stock. So in the, you know, since September of 2016, they've bought in over 40% of the shares outstanding. You know, we really like sort of the business there. I think, you know, we may talk about some of the challenges they're facing from competition and new entrants, but that's kind of the basic investment thesis around Charter. Liberty Broadband, as I mentioned before, is a holding company that has 50 million shares or give or take of Charter. Uh, they also own an Alaskan telecom company, but it's a small part of their business. But investors tend to, or the street tends to look at that and say, that's a, a layer of abstraction that I don't. I don't need, I don't want. And so the market hasn't valued those shares appropriately. It's tended to trade, you know, depending on the environment, somewhere between a five and 10 or 15% discount to the actual underlying market value of the charter shares. So we think of that as being sort of a, you know, we have a base case value for charter. And then there's this extra sort of potential monetization that we think of as being a double discount. When I'm looking at Charter specifically, because you, like you mentioned, is the main driver of Liberty Broadband's mm-hmm. valuation, I couldn't help but notice the difference between the market cap for Charter and enterprise value. A lot of companies I look at tend to be fairly close. Maybe you could explain why there's such a drastic difference. I see a market cap of around $83 billion today and an enterprise value of $176 billion. So maybe discuss why there's a difference and then what investors should be more focused on. That difference really does come down to that levered equity return strategy that I was talking about a moment ago. Charter's point of view mathematically is if we can borrow at 4 or 5% and use that to buy in our own stock that has a free cash flow yield, depending on when it was taking place of you know 10 or 12%, that's pretty accretive. And so we're going to do that all day. I think... From the point of view of an investor, though, you do need to be focused on both. 
right? I mean, the value creation potential for any investment, whether it's charter or anything else, is what's the value that can be derived from the actual operating of the business itself? And then how is management utilizing its balance sheet and deploying capital to supplement that? And if you are running your business at four turns of leverage or whatever it is, 4.4 in the case of charter, right? You are taking sort of the gearing of your business up to deliver that sort of extra return. Now, not every business can or should support four turns of leverage. Obviously, if you are running your balance sheet at that rate, you know, you really want to make sure that you have really dependable, rock solid cash flow streams that will enable you to either roll or refinance or whatever it is you need to do. And, you know, we think that's true at Charter. I think, you know, if you look at the tenure of the maturities that are coming, so of that debt, I think the weighted average life is like 14 years. The average cost of the debt is an incredibly low 4.3%. And the maturities, I think almost a little more than 90% of the maturities are out 2026 and beyond. You know, so this is a company that has been very thoughtful and mindful about how they have structured the tenure of that debt too, which I think is something investors should pay attention to, right? When we were back in the financial crisis and sort of debt markets were shut, a lot of companies would talk about their maturity towers as they were sort of coming due in 2009 or 2010 or the maturity wall or whatever. Pick your metaphor. I think the treasury departments of the world out there have, have taken that lesson to heart. You know, again, we think charter is is managing that appropriately. I guess part of the story in valuing a company like this, you you need to think about, you know, what's their repurchase program going to be like in the future? What are their, how's their debts going to change in the future? And then when thinking about interest rates moving, does that make it difficult, you know, to value a company like this? Martin pointed out earlier the, the comment about DCF analysis being sort of the Hubble telescope or now the James Webb telescope, right? I'll use this sort of to touch on sort of the current stock price as well. But, you know, when you have a company like Charter who's generating that much free cash flow and using incremental debt proceeds to buy back their stock, your view of what the per share value of that business will be three to five years from now is hugely impacted by your repurchase assumptions, right? And I guarantee everyone's models who are out there are, they're all precisely wrong. And so as we approach this, valuation exercise, you know, we're confident they're going to repurchase stock, but we need to be sort of mindful about how much of the value creation is coming from that, what are the sensitivities to that, and interest rates play into that to a certain extent as well, right? You need to be thinking about as you're refinancing your existing debt maturities that are coming, what is that going to come on at from a cost of capital perspective? Again, for as long-term debt as this debt is, that doesn't seem to be an immediate problem for charter. But it also may incrementally inform if you've got a leverage target rate from four to four and a half times, as cost of debt goes much lower, you're probably willing to flex to the higher end of that. And conversely, the same is true. So all of that being said, you know, particularly in the current environment with charter stock down at four, I don't know where it is at this particular moment, but 430 or something like that, the stocks really of all the capable companies have come under a ton of pressure as Verizon and T-Mobile and some others have been pushing on having fixed wireless broadband alternatives in the market. That's coming. And it's a similar sort of COVID hangover story too, as Barton was describing for Alphabet and Google. Charter and, and the cable companies in general pulled forward a ton of demand, a ton of customer creation for broadband service as COVID came into the fold. And a lot of that was sort of full priced paying customers, as well as some who came on sort of subsidies that were available to folks who qualified for them. Fast forward two years later, 
some of those programs are rolling off. People are sort of reverting back to some of their prior behaviors. And, you know, the amount of broadband growth that the cable industry as a whole is showing has slowed a lot relative to the last couple of quarters. And, you know, for as strong as the cash flows from these businesses are, for as uh, solid as their prospects are going forward, and the only number that Wall Street cares about right now is tell me how many broadband subscribers you added this quarter. That's been a challenge that the industry has been facing, you know, and I think there are long term sort of structural reasons why fixed wireless broadband isn't necessarily a solution that works for every customer in every market. Similarly, with fiber deployment, you know, we've been building fiber in this country in about 15 plus years, right? And it's only overbuilt, I think, I think Charter's footprint is only overbuilt by 30 to 35%. So I think some of the competitive dynamics here are being overstated and conflated with sort of the give back of some of the charter, excuse me, of some of the, the COVID experiences that we've seen. So the stocks across the whole industry have just been disproportionately hurt. I mean, the market's down as a whole, right? But they've been weaker than average. And for a company, again, that's growing cash flow and has demonstrated a willingness to buy back stock, it's not, it's not been fun on the way down, but we think there's an opportunity for them to really get after their own stock. And I think that'll be very accretive to their value. I do agree that the stock price is definitely beaten down at, you know, I just checked 436 bucks today and it, you know, peaked out just over 800. And, you know, I see mm-hmm. free cat just at a high level, free cash flows of 8 billion. Earlier, I mentioned the market caps just over 80 billion, enterprise value 176 billion. I'd like to transition to talk about one more individual stock that's Accenture. Talk to us about this one. You know, we've owned Accenture for at least 10 years. And I, I believe, Drew, that was one of the first businesses that you uh, wrote up and, and ended up in our portfolios, right? That's right. Yep. You know, that brings up an interesting point about our process in being business analysts. And I'll get to Accenture in a second. But you know, Drew has covered it. I've covered it. Uh, our colleague, John Baker, has covered it. And we actually just transitioned it to uh, one of our newer analysts that joined, Most Bolin. And that speaks to what we want to do with our team. We always want our, our analyst team to have capital under their coverage, meaning committed capital in, in the portfolios that, that gives them real skin in the game. But it does another important thing by moving coverage around periodically. We don't do it every year. We do it very deliberately and uh, uh, sporadically. But it gives each of our teammates experiences with different businesses and different business models. And that helps them develop their own form of mental models for looking at across sectors and at different businesses. So then we often spend time sitting around the table at our investment meetings, talking about various companies, and that means everyone can contribute. And I think Accenture is just, just a good example of that. But Accenture is, you know, on a holistic level, is an IT consulting firm. And if you were just to go look at those three quantitative elements I, I talked about in the beginning, financial leverage, cash flow consistency, and capital efficiency, you know, that would screen out as the general IT sector a pretty good house, a very good house in a pretty poor neighbor or pretty average neighborhood, right? I mean, that that that's how it, how it would look. And you know, for years, IT consulting has been talked about as, uh, in one sentence, your mess for less. We'll take all your spaghetti works of IT stuff and we'll move it and we'll do it for a lower price. And so there is price competition in that. 
Accenture has always been different in that aspect. It has strategy consulting arm, it has an operational arm, and then it has an IT outsourcing business, which they run better than anyone. And that then speaks to another advantage that I don't see other investors talk about too much. And it relates to their human capital management, which I really think is one of their real strategic advantages. And and there are others. And it's really what I call the three R's of talent, which is recruit, retain, and retrain. And Accenture is essentially the best at it. And it goes all the way back to its heritage when it was part of Arthur Anderson. And they had this campus uh, in St. Charles, Illinois where they would bring people in every year and train them for a week or two weeks. And when Accenture split off from from Arthur Anderson, they actually retained the campus. And that culture of constantly learning has helped them over time to manage all these different shifts in IT trends, if you will. I mean, like in the middle of 2000s, right? All companies could talk about was their digital front end and being interactive with their customers. And Accenture pivoted to that as part of their business and really uh, became a share leader with what was a time called Accenture Interactive. And they just changed it to Song, which I'm sure they paid themselves well in coming up with that name. But they continually are able to see trends and invest behind them with people. And in a time where companies and consultants, all you hear is we have trouble finding, retaining people. Accenture is, you know, they have the they have turnover a little bit higher than, than they've had in the past, but much less than their peers. And what that allows them to do is go to very large businesses and say, we can be consistent. And not only that, we're a thought leader. When you add all that up, you just have a business that grows pretty predictably, generates lots of free cash flow. It has high ROIC because it turns it more than it has super high margins. And we've just really liked it. And there are times when, yeah, it's probably been fairly valued or a little bit ahead of itself. And then there are the times where it's cheaper than that. And we've added and trimmed over time, but it's been a core position for at least 10 years for us. Any, Drew, you want to? No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the other things too that I, I guess I will add is you know, I think Accenture's always occupied sort of this principal. Accenture's always occupied this space where they're also technology agnostic, right? So they have the ability to sort of always uh, skate to where the puck is going. And they're not beholden to any particular sort of vendor or platform or, you know, any sort of other sort of compute modality. And I mean, when you think about sort of the migration to the cloud, they've, I think, been really helpful in accelerating business transformations, getting companies and investors to think about moving their infrastructure into the cloud, thinking about how do they get workloads into the cloud? And how do they select vendors that are really sort of best of breed for what it is they need to do? I mean, I think that's just, that's been an advantage relative to sort of, you know, whether it's an in-house IBM management consultant who's got the latest and greatest system Z iron, they're looking to play somewhere. That's an important point. I cover software for the team and all the software companies, they want to have an element of professional services so that they can make sure they, they get good reference clients and and they get several implementations done really well. But ultimately they're looking for partners like Accenture to build practices, you know, build a workday practice, build a Salesforce practice, build an Oracle practice. And Accenture is all of those. And so it can truly be agnostic. It's not going to choose workday because it has more consultants in workday than than it has an SAP or Oracle. It's just going to help customers go through that vendor selection process and pick the one that works for them. We really are a trusted partner to, to large enterprises. 
I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily as, as relevant too, but I mean, I think it speaks to the, the holistic way that we think about our portfolios as well. You know, when we're thinking about software, potential software investments, you know, vertical software providers, whatever it might be, I'm thinking of an example where Accenture had an in-house sort of offering within a vertical software field that they ultimately decided to get rid of in order to build a systems integration practice for sort of the, the best provider in the industry. Like that is about as strong an endorsement as you're doing due diligence on a potential new investment that you can find in that space. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, And it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. 
That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. You know, from a high level, I agree that, you know, it seems like a very high quality business. You look at the revenues, the earnings, whatever metric you want to look at, it's straight up and to the right. And I think there's something a little bit different about Accenture than some of your other holdings because it's trading at what seems to be a much higher multiple. So what is it about Accenture that allows them to fit into your fund despite being at a higher multiple? I think that's a good point. Accenture is certainly not the cheapest business that we own at the moment, but it is trading at a discount to what we believe is is our base case value. We do see upside returns there. And part of it is our history with the business. Part of it is the fact that it's growing in the 20s and no one's giving them credit for it. And they, and their book to bill has been above one in both strategy and operations. So that means that you take this growth rate here, right? It's going to grow at least uh, double digits year out. So as again, we, we don't necessarily pay attention to the current multiple or even the next multiple. We say, what are the, what's the cash flow generation over five to 10 years, depending on the business? And you know, we discount that back. We talked about our, our discount rate. And uh, when you look at that, yes, it also trades at a higher multiple than it pe- its peers, but that's because it deserves it, right? I've looked at pl- many other businesses in, in IT consulting and have unpleasant experiences with some of them. And I will tell you, Accenture grades out high on our quality score, whereas those others don't. And that, that's why you have to look at those three qual- quantitative elements. But then when you look at especially reinvestment runway for Accenture, but also competitive positioning where I talked about their human capital. That gives us confidence in sort of understanding the longer term growth rate, free cash flow conversion, which then you know discount that back today. And it's like I said, it's not the cheapest business we own, but we do see a pretty good return from here for sure. So we're happy to own it. I'd like to chat a little bit just about the overall market environment as well. Everything that's happening with rising rates, higher inflation. I think part of me says that that should play some sort of part in our investment strategy because you know it affects maybe growth rates of your businesses, maybe earnings in the maybe next few years. Could you guys talk about how the overall market environment plays into your process or do you focus just solely on the bottoms up investment approach? Maybe I'll start with that and Barton you can add on. I mean I think you know really the I think at a high level, I would sort of start that answer by saying, as we entered into this year, you know, we maintain a, a base case valuation for all of our investments. We then look at our portfolios on a rolled up basis to say, you know, okay, on a portfolio basis, where's our portfolio trading relative to our value? And coming into this year, depending on the portfolio, it was in the high 80s or low 90s price to value ratios. So to us, you know, things were approaching, you know, fairly valued, not particularly, you know, dangerous or or concerning, but after a 3 to 5 year period of whatever it was, 17% compounded annual returns, right? It just seemed very reasonable to think that forward-looking returns from there would be more muted. Obviously, what we've seen in the 7 months since then has been a pretty massive re-rating within the market, and our view of that has been our fundamental business performance, the business like the actual performance of the businesses that we own hasn't been that far off the mark. And so what's happened is that some of the the sort of stock price risk that was embedded in those securities has has come out. And that's not pleasant to go through. Certainly it's painful for us and for our clients. But the underlying fundamental business values 
have been about what we expected. And so in the current market environment, we see our portfolios trading at something closer to 70 cents on the dollar now. As we look ahead, you know, none of us are macroeconomists, none of us are Fed watchers, none of us are sitting around Monday mornings guessing at whether it's going to be 75 basis points or 100, right? That's just not what we do. It could be the case that if the economy sort of performs a little bit worse from here than, than sort of our base case expectations would be, our valuations might come down a little bit. But that's why, as Barton pointed out at the top of the conversation, we're always looking to buy companies where we've got a margin of safety. We can absorb some of that knowing that we're still wanting to own these businesses for three, five years, even longer, and that the short term is going to be whatever it is. But if we're right about the quality of our businesses and the opportunities that they're attacking, that's what we're focused on. And so, again, anything can happen in the short term. But, you know, we certainly, I think we're, we're certainly more constructive about the valuation environment that exists today. And again, you know, I think. Part of our focus on quality businesses is that if there is economic chop to come, we think we're investing in companies that not only are going to make it through without any sort of major hiccups, but that can also actually take advantage of that volatility as it comes, you know, whether it's in the form of M&A, whether it's in the form of taking market share, whatever that might be, we want to be investing in companies that can make their own breaks. In, in that last part, Drew talks about a concept uh, within you know our competitive positioning element that what's durability and resiliency is one of the things that we look for, which is what Drew talked about. When you have something, you know, the economy goes down, things out of a company's control. Because I think we should be clear, we're of the mind that no business escapes a macro downturn. I'm sure there are, but. 2008 is a great example. Everybody thought energy companies were the greatest thing to invest in as we rolled into the year. Then by November, they were the worst things you could ever imagine. Now, we don't invest in energy companies. We don't believe we have an edge in them and they're commodities ultimately, so we don't touch them. But that's, that's just an example. If you have a resilient business, then you can focus on another element of durability, which is adaptability. Meaning if you have a long enough runway and your industry is undergoing changes or there's a disruptor, do you have the ability to then change and repivot a business to be adaptive? And so if you have both of those and sort of strong elements, then you have a durable business and, and that speaks to that, that competitive advantage. And that's why we don't, we're not cheering for a macroeconomic downturn because it hurts everyone along the spectrum. But at the same time, we know we can't control it. And that's why I smiled when you mentioned it at the beginning, because as much as we tell ourselves, don't focus on the macro, it's so easy to be seduced into saying, well, what if this happens and that happens? And myself or someone, a colleague will raise our hands and go like, is this really worth our time? And the answer is always no. That goes back into this, our concept we talked at the beginning of this return on research time invested. And it's just an element of trying to be better and developing your process every day. I think we can't predict the future. We especially can't predict the next 9, 12 months. It's sort of uh, once you let go of the fact that you can't do that, it's a lot better, but it's so easy to believe you can. You mentioned uh, Mr. Miller earlier in the conversation, Clay, and I'm, I'm reminded, I, I believe it's his quote or, or paraphrasing him anyway, that you know, the secret to investing is time, not timing. And trying to guess at what the next three, six, nine months is all about timing. But if you can build a portfolio of durable, resilient, high quality growing businesses, time's on your side. Drew, when I was looking at your opportunity fund that you co-manage, 
I noticed that you had a little bit of a short position on SPY, which is the S&P 500. That might be a position that some Fed watchers have, but I don't think you have the same thesis that they do. <laughs> Talk about your uh, thought process on why this is a part of the portfolio. I mentioned, I think, at the, at the outset, sort of about our funds, that Partners 3 Opportunity Fund is a, it's a long-biased fund that has a couple of extra tools. One of them is the ability to short. We have maintained a, an index short position, typically against the SPY, the Spider, or the Triple Qs, the NASDAQ 100, and have done that for a number of years. That's been a consistent feature of the portfolio. You know, I, on the very sort of highest level, easy to sort of look at that as being sort of a, a portfolio ballast sort of position, right? Market sells off, it's going to give you some amount of buoyancy. And that's certainly sort of a function of why it is there. But we also use it for a number of different reasons. As we see the valuations of what we own approaching sort of a, a fair price or fuller price, we can effectively take equity risk out of the portfolio by increasing our short position. And that allows us to do a couple of different things. One, again, reduce the equity sort of position in a period of time where valuations feel a bit stretched. But it allows us to do that without actually selling individual companies that we own. If you sell a business that you really like, you're making two timing decisions, right? You've decided that this is the right time to sell. And in the future, I'm going to have to know for sure what time, you know, when's the right time to get back in. As I said a second ago, paraphrasing Mr. Miller, it's time, not timing. By using the shorts to sort of flex our equity position in that, in that way, we can retain these really high quality businesses that we own and let the management teams continue compounding their value per share in our favor. You know, so that helps us do that. And then the third is it also is a mean to sort of not necessarily take realized gains when you're sort of affecting that transaction. So that's another piece of that particular toolkit. And you'll see it flex over time. You know, it's, it's particularly low. I think it was 3% total short at the end of the most recent quarter. You know, it's been as high as 20 plus, you know, and again, that'll be in reaction to the overall environment. The fund also can do individual security shorts. You won't see it do much in the way of tactical shorting. You know, we weren't in there fighting the GameStop battle, for example. And in fact, that's a cautionary tale for why that might not be a game that is for the faint of heart. You know, but we will from time to time use it in more special situations kinds of things. And we don't need to get into the specifics, but Liberty Sirius XM is another holding company that owns a huge portion of Sirius XM, the satellite radio company, but that trades at an even wider discount than Charter does within Liberty Broadband. So if you sell short the theory while owning the Liberty Sirius, you've effectively monetized that discount yourself. And that's a trade that we've, we've done a number of times over the years as well. But again, I think it's important to point out that yes, the short position has come down to about 3% of net assets. And we wrote, we wrote in our quarterly commentary, which is, has just been released, that's not about trying to call a bottom. That's as low as it's been in quite a long time. But that's, again, that's in response to the opportunities that we see within our own portfolio and saying, you know, we really like these businesses. They're trading at really attractive valuations. The market's come down, yes, a lot. But we think the forward-looking returns from here look pretty good and we want more of it. You know, so again, that's not to say the market can't go down substantially from here. But our job is to pick really great businesses and invest at them, invest in them at prices that we think are attractive. And and so that's what we're doing. Final question I had for you guys is I got connected with you because you're in Nebraska. I lived in Omaha for a number of years, and that's where you guys are located. And you obviously read and know a lot about Buffett, I'm sure. And, you know, Buffett has 
kind of been known to always have a cash pile to help weather through the crazy macro downtrends and you know take advantage of those opportunities. Is that something you guys have ever utilized or is that even an option for a fund like what you guys have? At various points in our history, we have maintained larger cash positions. But as I sort of mentioned earlier as well, we're trying to be responsive to what our clients want, right? We want to be a client-focused enterprise. And what we sort of hear from them is we want to make the allocation decisions ourselves, and we want you to pick stocks. We have moved a number of years ago to having more fully invested portfolios. Partners 3, again, the taking the short to a larger position and then having a, a lower net is kind of a version of that. But you know, we think... Again, if you're making a market call about how much cash to have on hand at any given time, right? you're, again, making a timing decision that we're trying to... I think we'd rather find really great businesses and hold them and let them work on our behalf as opposed to sitting in cash, which until very recently earned zero. I would say, just add to that, Clay, a little bit. Being fully invested allows us to create competition for capital. And it's a forcing function of finding the best combination of high-quality businesses at an appropriate discount. And we found that since we've moved in the last several years to, to especially in, in, in the funds that, that aren't partners three, to taking that approach that we've had much more robust discussions and we've high-graded the portfolios. And so we, we think, you know, looking forward over time, that, that, that is really going to pay off. It probably doesn't feel that good now. Well, I know it doesn't feel that good right now. As someone who is very much invested in all of our funds, but I've actually, I sleep well at night. I've, I've said this before is this, you know, especially even with the war in Ukraine, which is horrendous, but I felt better today at this time period, much better than I did when in 08, 09, because part of it, I was new to the firm, obviously, but another part of it is just, I know what we own, I know a process. And I just think looking forward, it, it feels better. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to play out like I feel, obviously, right? Feelings are not facts. But knowing that competition for capital is part of that reason why I feel good about it. Yeah, I do agree with Drew's point that having you know the larger short position when the market's up and going crazy, that does kind of help add that ballast and decrease that risk. So it's almost like a cash position in a way. And I really like how you pointed that out. So Drew, Barton, thank you guys so much for joining me. It's really been an honor having you on the show. Before we close it out, I want to give you guys the opportunity to give the handoff to White and anything else you guys would like to share. I think first and foremost, Clay, thank you very much for this opportunity. I mean, it's really fantastic and enjoyed the conversation. If folks want to learn more about White's Investments and how we invest, a great place to start is our website, whitesinvestments.com. There you'll find, you know, obviously all of our portfolio commentary and shareholder letters, maybe particularly for this audience. They might be interested in our analyst corner features, where generally every quarter we pick one portfolio holding and, and do a deeper dive on the investment thesis. So there's some great material there. Our colleague, Nathan Ritz, has written up Danaher for this quarter. So folks can find that there. Of course, you can also find us on LinkedIn and or Twitter. We post anytime we put a white paper up or if one of us has been in a, you know, a video interview or something like that, that'll all be there as well. Martin and I are also on LinkedIn too. So you can find us there. And then lastly, if anyone's interested in investing, they can, again, sort of use our website directly or through any number of intermediaries that are out there. And just really, again, want to say thank you to you, Clay, and appreciate this opportunity and, and a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Clay. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. 
If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.